0: I'm going to scream loudly to uh, board of trustee members because what we have to really have is a board of trustees who understands us completely and understands higher ed completely so that they can help make good decisions and stand behind presidents who have been courageous. Everything, uh, every piece of work I say yes to now has to do with being able to give substance to the courage that everyone needs to become more sustainable for the future.
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to Ingenious You, the podcast where we get to speak with higher ed's most creative thinkers and doers, and that is clearly the case for today's guest. Joanne Soliday is a well-seasoned higher ed leader, speaker, presidential advisor, and a catalyst for change. She's co-authored two very important books, and she founded Credo, the higher ed consulting firm that is dedicated to empowering small independent colleges and universities to thrive. Her bio is linked in the show notes so that you can see the full breadth and depth of her professional journey. Joanne, it is such a pleasure to welcome you to the Ingenious Hue community.
0: Oh, thank you so much for inviting me, Melissa. I love to be able to
1: share whatever I've learned with people. Well, we like to start our conversations by learning something about our guests. And in your case, I would like to know something about the backstory that led to your starting your own higher education consulting company.
0: I would love to tell you the backstory um, of, of helping to build Credo, being the co-founder of Credo, but I, I will have to tell you, it isn't a straight line. It's got a lot of wiggles in it. So I'll try to uh, put it together as, as succinctly as I can. I loved my 18 years at Elon University and Elon had become known by that time as a growing, thriving institution. So all of us who were on the team at that time um, were, were really sought after it in different ways to be able to tell people what we'd done. So that was kind of helpful. But can, um, emerging with that was my husband's career in the telephone company. And so we had to scoot around a little bit with his career and I had to come and go from some things. And at one of those come and goes, I landed on the idea that I should do some consulting. And my Elon Um, peers were really excited that I might do that. And so I started by developing a strategic planning process and brought it uh, to the colleges in North Carolina. And because of that Elon reputation, I was able to have a lot of clients right off the bat and help them with strategic planning. And that was great. But then I met uh, Tom Gavick, who was at that time the uh, one of the owners of a firm called Performa, and it did campus master planning. Uh, we decided to merge our two pieces together, and eventually we bought out that part of the firm, of that architectural firm there, and formed Credo. And so Credo then, uh, at the at the moment that that happened, we were a firm of very few people, um, and now they've become a firm of between 40 and 50 people and over 100 affiliates, which is just one of the wonderful things that um, I love about it because vice presidents and presidents across the country who have done really interesting and substantial things are joining our team for a project, um, which we love, and we can use them and their expertise in our team. So it's a pretty big organization now, and the president of the organization um, and it the uh The two other members of the leadership team are all people that I hired, and um, that makes me very excited to watch them and watch them grow. What
1: a wonderful legacy, and like all good entrepreneurs, which you clearly are, you can hear the passion in your voice. You obviously had a dream and a vision when you founded the company, right? So can you tell us about this, and how did you actually go about making that vision a reality? You know,
0: I am going to, my partner in this, my co found we are co-founders of Credo. Um, and he was part of the architectural firm that where we came together. I just got to give him credit for so much of the vision. Um, Tom Gavick had a lot of vision and I have a real executing and implementation mm-hmm. skill. And together we were just great. But his vision was clear from the very beginning. How do we help students? And my vision as a higher ed professional was, we can't help them unless we help train and help the administrators and the faculty who work with them. So together, when we merge that, um, he often says when he tells the story that it was magic. And I really think it was magic. I would have never had the courage to do a lot of what I did without his vision and his encouragement, um, his way of looking at investments and financial pieces that we needed. And, and he would have probably never had the courage to jump in hard to all the pieces of higher ed without my generalist background. So we, we made a great team. And our first hire was um, the current president, Bill Farner, who stayed with us all those 20-some years and is now the, the president of the firm. And his vision is still exactly the same, along with the leadership team we have there, Jaretta uh, Nelson and and. Emma Jones and they are students first and then how do we surround people with the tools they need uh, to make students successful? So that's where the vision
1: was. Well, in the longevity of that vision and the fact that your folks have stayed with you for so long is also I think a reflection of how solid uh, the thinking was right from the beginning. And you've obviously, I know you've grown tremendously Um, over the years so you obviously had your finger on the pulse of the market we did
0: we tried really hard to do that we had some strategies to do that and I know that you'll be asking about some of those but we have really tried to keep our uh, finger on the pulse
1: yeah now I have to ask you one of the interesting things in your bio uh, you are an ordained minister I am And, and so I'm curious how does that fit in with everything else that you've done on your life's journey? Oh, that's a great
0: question. Thank you for asking it. I always uh, felt called to ministry from when I was 13 years old. I majored in Christian education when I went to college. but many will remember, now I'm, I'm, um, I'm in my mid seventies, that during the time when I was in my mid twenties, there weren't real places for women in ministry. So I kind of put it aside for a good while, served in local churches um, as a lay person, but put it in, aside for a good while until it became easier to do. And then I served a church, um, the same one I am in right now for five years as an associate pastor. Now I'm the chair of the elder council at our interdenominational church for about 1,500 um, people and love every minute of it. It's my second love, really my first love. (laughs) And then my second love is higher ed. But I have found that there are a lot of similarities in serving people who are hurting in a church and how to build the tools to do that and serving students who need the tools too. So I guess I'm a tool builder consider myself a real servant leader in both areas, and they're both very important to me.
1: Well, and it sounds like you've come full circle, which is a wonderful place to be at, uh, at this place in your life. So yes. um, now you're the author of two highly read and often cited books, Pivot, A Vision for the New, the New University. I had your co-author on um, a few weeks ago. Uh, Mark Mark Lombardi, and Surviving to Thriving, a planning framework for leaders of private colleges and universities. I have read both books. I have found them to be uh, really accessible, easy to read, and full of practical wisdom and valuable strategies that I think should actually be on the radar of all college leaders now uh, <laughs> more than ever. But one of your key recommendations in Pivot has to do with being student-centered. And when I read that I thought well that of course that seems obvious and yet I'm guessing it isn't since you felt the need to pull it out and and highlight it. So can you speak to that and what is it that gets in the way uh, of being student centered?
0: Oh probably our history Melissa. We as a high as a higher ed um, industry if we can say that we, you know, we've followed our traditions and our history a long way with with good cause because so many of them are important. Um, the, the pieces of knowledge and learning that we have historically way back to the days when colleges started and higher ed started are really important. But, but we probably became over the years a bit more administration and faculty centered than student centered. We had such hard work to do and uh, wanted to protect With tenure and other things, the ability to teach and the freedom to teach the way we needed to. Um, Then, you know, in the in when it when it became apparent that finances were going to be a real issue in higher education back in those days, we all got centered on how do we make this affordable and how do we make this uh, how do we scholarship students so that they can come. I think all those pieces led us to focus a little bit more on how to run a college whether rather than what students needed at the time And so when you think about that, and Mark probably mentioned some of this, we began to learn more about how students learn differently. We began to learn about um, how all students don't learn the same way. At the same time, we were coming to the conclusion that we were really not running our colleges in an efficient and sustainable way. And so that collided. And in my mind at Credo, the collision for us was to bring it back to student-centeredness while building efficiencies so that the colleges could run better. And it, it needed to be said. I mean, you could, I will give you a wonderful example. Um, I used to have a lot of fun asking a college to choose a process that they were using. And I'll, I'll put out there for those listening, because everyone will smile, the withdrawal process at a college. Let's put that one out. The withdrawal process is clearly not built around students. We go from office to office and get signatures signed and drive a student crazy so they almost don't ever want to see us again by the time we're done. And yet, in a college where we've gone in and said, let's reprocess the withdrawal process to be student-centered, and we actually process map it. Up on the board so that we can see how different it is. That is a tiny mic- microism of, um, of how most processes are at colleges. And so to be able to go back and reprocess map and make things more student centered in advising, in career development. Um, even in the way we schedule our classes and we choose uh, we choose classes that students need to take has been a real eye opener for all of us and it does still make me passionate and all of the members of the credo team passionate to go in and do some of that because that is what is going to really increase retention and that is really is what is going to make us relevant for the future
1: Boy, I couldn't agree with you more. I, from my experience as provost and as a faculty member now, I can think of any number of processes that are not uh, student-centered, student-focused. And you know who, who I see impacted most are those non-traditional students.
0: Yes. Those
1: students who are new to higher ed, they don't have a family tradition, and uh, the processes many times seem to be particularly uh, difficult for, for those students. I, I agree. I, our, uh, um,
0: Geretta Nelson sometimes says they don't have academic hope. Nobody has given it to them. So we need to give it to them in our processes so that they can see that it's achievable for them.
1: Yeah. I think of student accounts and billing. That's where it, it oftentimes those, (laughs) those policies are not, they're not helpful in terms of pulling students through, are they? No, they're not. And and actually, one of the
0: worst ones, and we address this daily, is um, the one where we allow students' bills to drift on for months and years so that they've always got this pushing behind them from their parents and themselves about how unaffordable things are. We, we just don't clean all that up before classes start. So that's one of the processes we love to fix is, yeah. uh, let's get the bill paid and then let's, uh, let's get the students concentrated on what they need to.
1: Boy, that's so, so important. Now, one of the other interesting recommendations has to do with your guidance. And I love the way you state it about no margin, no mission and the importance of running the institution in the black. And to accomplish this, you advise uh, in the book that institutions must radically transform their approach to the business of their institutions with intense focus on prioritizing strategy, centralizing decision-making, building partnerships, and realigning budgetary processes with difference-making initiatives, among other things. That's taken verbatim from Pivot. Yeah. Um, no. Now, when I when I read that, I'm nodding. I'm like, yes, yes, of course, <laughs> this all makes sense. Um, and yet, I'm wondering how does this align with the faculty culture and how faculty see their role, uh, in particularly uh, on most private college campuses. As you know, the number of presidents and provosts who are receiving votes of no confidence. Uh, in recent times has escalated. And many of these votes have come uh, in uh, defiance to presidents trying to institute a more business-oriented kind of approach. So I guess my question is, how, how can a president, how can the leadership team balance these seemingly conflicted agendas? On one hand, keeping the faculty happy and productive, While also doing what you need to do to ensure the solvency of the institution.
0: Yeah, that's the big question, isn't it? That's the big question of the day, how we're going to make that happen. And um, so let me give you my answer in two or three bullets. Um, The first one is I'm going to scream loudly to uh, board of trustee members, because what we have to really have is a board of trustees who understands us completely and understands higher ed completely so that they can help make good decisions and stand behind presidents who have been courageous. So that would be my first um, piece. And and I think I do more work now with board of trustee members than I do anybody else with boards, redesigning committees so they're more helpful to the campus, um, being less of an oversight entity and more of a partner so that the funding can be there and everything can be there so people can go forward. So I'll start with the board. Then I, I will say this, and sometimes I'm not popular for saying this, but I'm going to say this because I've been part of it for 35 some years. We have been a bit unfair to faculty over the years and I will admit it out loud and my fellow administrators are going to have to agree with me because every time there's a trend we ask faculty to move with us through the trend and that's been happening forever beginning with the, di- the first discounting we ever did um, and didn't explain it to them completely so that they were in the dark of how we were beginning to eat away at the budget in order to subsidize um, students to come to the college. So, oh, I can think back over my admissions years when I made unbelievably good and persuasive um, presentations to faculty members telling them that they ought to be doing this and they ought to do that and they could help us if they would do that. And, and I think I was a, a respected administrator so I got their cooperation. But you know, that's been a, that's been a long line of do this, do that without data attached to it. And you and I both know that one of the things that faculty really need and love is data. They are research experts, they've been trained that way. And so we did a lot on hunches for a long time. Um, so what I say now to in order to reconcile and to bring us together with faculty as administrators and consultants and presidents and, and uh, accrediting bodies is that if we're going to state that something has to change, we better bring the data along with it so that we can have some proof of that. And I think we had, we were not good at that for many years. And so we lost a little bit of the confidence of faculty in just making change for change sake. Does that make sense to you? Oh, absolutely,
1: yeah. And that squares with my own experience. So I think that's really wise. The other thing, I just want to comment on your, your first point about boards is so, so very critical. And I, I know of institutions where presidents have been left out on the plank, if you will. They've been courageous. They've done what they've needed to do. And the board has not, it's tough sometimes, I think, for boards, particularly in these private colleges that uh, have such close-knit communities where board members know faculty members and, and so on. It's very hard sometimes for boards to stand firm when they start to get pushback from the faculty about actions that the leadership might be taking. So it it, it is it is very, very difficult, isn't it? It,
0: it is. And I think, you know, everybody, every board member has a cousin on the staff of a small private college, so it is difficult. So my last point about this, and I can't drive it home more, and I can't say how much I believe in it with enough passion, is that every college has to have a clear and functional strategic plan that everybody has bought into that everybody understands that is sunk to their souls as i sometimes say that they know what the top three things we need to do in the next three years are and they all understand how we're going to do them and that that plan is so important and then Let me just say that a lot of my work right now is convincing boards that they need to have three committees that mimic the goals of the strategic plan. And I love my work with board members now, where I work with the board committee in visibility and growth, because that's one of the strategic plan themes. And we say, as a board, what can we do? Not as a board, what should we monitor? Or what should we manage for the institution? But how can we provide new visibility. And I, it, the difference in the activity and engagement around the committees that are structured around the strategic plan is phenomenal to me. Board members coming up with networks they have. Uh, you, a student success committee on a board of trustees saying, I believe we can go out and get another 50 internships for the college. Mm. we could have never done that ourselves right so that partnership so i believe that if we all say we're going to do this plan with these goals and we're going to have these board committees that will assist the college in doing it then every board member has something that they can say to a relative or to a, a a mayor of a town or to a politician in a town to say Well, we've really researched and this theme of our strategic plan demands that we make this decision. But when you're just trying to sort of talk around all that and defend a president, that's way different. We we have to have substance. And that's what I meant when I talked to you about data. So everything, uh, every piece of work I say yes to now has to do with being able to give substance to the courage that everyone needs to become more sustainable for the future.
2: You have the experience. You've completed the coursework in a doctoral program, but you haven't completed that dissertation. Now you have a path to leave your ABD, that's all but dissertation status behind with Bay Path University, our innovative doctorate of education in higher ed leadership and organizational studies abd degree completion program makes it easier than ever for qualified candidates to finish what you started our one-of-a-kind program builds on your previous experience with coursework designed to strengthen your innovative leadership mindset and gain the executive management skill set you need to lead and to transform educational institutions for the 21st century. The coursework for the ABD degree completion program is entirely online and can be completed in well under two years. What's more, you will have an abundance of support along the way, from your faculty advisor to your small community of practice group of classmates with whom you will meet regularly for dissertation advisement and much needed encouragement. With Baypath University, there's no reason to wait any longer. Trade up from ABD to EDD and take your place among the next generation of educational leaders. For more information, visit our website at baypath.edu slash e-d-d. That's baypath.edu slash e-d-d. Don't wait a minute longer. Make today the day you finish what you started.
1: do a lot of mentoring and strategic advising with college and university presidents these days. And I'm curious what your take on uh, what your take is on what the college presidency is like right now, and what you see to be the most critical challenges facing these leaders. There was just an article I don't, I don't know if it was the Chronicle or Inside Higher Ed, talking about how the exodus of so many presidents in the last couple of years because of the pandemic challenges and everything associated with that. So um, again, what, what do you see from the work that you're doing?
0: Well, I do, I do, do still do a good deal of work with college presidents um, in an advising capacity. Um, and there are a couple things that are really clear to me. So I'll mention them directly. I've written about a couple of them in the book. We do not have the bench we need at colleges to help presidents succeed. Um, Almost always the college presidents are needing to talk with me about their vice presidents. Now we've got some great vice presidential benches but there is nobody just beneath them. And so they're exhausted. And so they have not got the capability they need to be strategic with the presidents and, and try to build good solutions for the future like it's necessary. So the president gets lonely and their shoulders get heavy. The vice presidents get lonely and their shoulders are heavy. Uh, we just have not been good secession planners. We have not uh, built up benches underneath us. We've done our hiring the old way. We fill positions that come up because there's a position to fill not because we take a good look at what might be the talent gap at the time. Mark might've said something about that. He's the one who gave me those words, but um, there are talent gaps out there and they don't fit into these neat little positions we have anymore. And so we've got to look closer at talent gaps. So I would say that's one of the things that's crushing our presidents is that succession piece, that bench, that team underneath. Um, COVID is a crusher. There's just no doubt about it. Uh, People only want to hear from presidents and they only want to hear what presidents have to say. Everything that happens in COVID is blamed on presidents because they didn't take this step right or that step right when we don't know the right steps to take. But I'll tell you what COVID has also done two things that I think are powerfully positive for the future so let me tell you what they are number one. the stimulus money has allowed many of our college presidents to see what a balanced budget really looks like. And that margin mission thing has come to light for them. Like, wow, we've got a little bit of, 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 of contentment here. We've got a little bit of, um, our unsettledness is gone. So I'm watching lots of colleges say, we're never gonna get into any kind of budgetary issue again. We know what this feels like now, we're gonna come back to it. And the second thing is COVID is the first thing that's ever forced our colleges and universities to integrate everybody on campus to come together around one cause. And they did it beautifully. They uh, they rallied, they rallied quickly. They saw leaders emerge that they never knew would emerge. They they saw where risk is and where innovation is. And, and so I feel good about that, but it's been exhausting. Absolutely exhausting. I've uh, listened to, um, uh, some, some research uh, several weeks ago about uh, some data on the exhaustion level of faculty and staff and presidents and vice presidents. And it, it was just eye-opening um, to me. The, the other thing is that um, I, I feel like as presidents, our presidents have still not determined what the right amount of accessibility and visibility is. It's a very difficult thing. Um, we're still holding on to the past where we needed to be at every basketball game, and still trying to move to the future where, we really ought to strategically be gathering the innovators in the community and figuring out what the newest innovations in business are so that we can implement them in our college. And those two conflict all the time. And so I'm trying to to advise presidents to back up a bit on the visibility, which is gonna make a ruffle on campus some. Mm -hmm. But if they don't back up a tiny bit on that and move into the strategic and innovative phase, then the college will get behind. And you know, Melissa, I'm gonna say this, and and you know the number one problem in our colleges will always be communication. It will (laughs) always be communication and it will most always be internal communication. So if we could figure out a way to communicate with each other so that there was more trust, that would be easier to do.
1: That is so important. And, you know, again, I'm thinking about these small private colleges where presence uh, is so impactful. And you're absolutely right, the expectations that faculty and staff have, they want to see their president. Um, They want the president to attend their event. Uh, to show up for everything and so I think that's particularly challenging um, on these campuses that are so embedded uh, with the sense of community, right?
0: Yeah, we used to have, I, I remember being part of a team that at Elon where we used to, we used to say that we have to say, You know, one of us might have a VP might have to walk up to a basketball coach and say, "I'm here for the president tonight because he's attending whatever." And it it just kind of it fixed it, you know. But when you just show up, it's not assumed you're there uh, to represent the president. So there's some strategies we can use that we have just not been used to losing using. But that visibility piece is crushing our presidents now. And yes, I see many of them fleeing and not as many of them in the pools that I would love to see. Mm.
1: So from your research and the work that you're doing around the country, and you do literally touch uh, institutions all over, uh, all over the country, um, what do you think it's going to take for these small independent institutions to achieve a state of resiliency so that they can thrive and survive well into the future Bearing in mind that the demographics are not necessarily uh, flowing in their favor in many cases. So I'd just love to know what your what you're thinking is on that.
0: Yeah, so I really feel, and, and you're gonna agree with this, I think, there is nothing that lifts the spirit of a college campus more than retention does. When people are staying, and you can brag about people staying, and you are doing the things to make them stay, there is a resiliency there. And so um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to note, you know, for us at Credo, our, our emphasis on what we call moving the needle, moving the needle of retention up um, for undergraduate students, you know, 10 percentage points, and for adult students, more percentage points, moving that needle and doing the things that it takes to do that which are very interestingly different than we think they might be They're uh, They're different things than we used to think we used to think get better students will have better retention, that is way different now we have colleges with uh, students who are there it's an open admissions arena and they're still retaining at high percentages because of some of what they're doing. What students are looking for today is what is going to be relevant to them in the future. They wanna know, how am I gonna understand what the current jobs are? How am I gonna prepare myself for them? How do I prepare myself for life? And that's what parents want too. And there are many financial issues along with the retention issues, we know that. But I'm going to say that resilience will come if we continue to press towards being student-centered and doing the things that will keep more of them and more of the faculty with us, um, resilience is going to come too with the communication that that is working.
1: Because sometimes
0: we do wonderful things (laughs) on campuses and nobody knows about it. (laughs) So we will have to begin to brag a little bit ourselves about when those things are working like they need to be working so that we get some resiliency uh, there. And and then I will say one of my favorite things to say about this, there's got to be a point when we stop doing some of the things we're doing so we can start doing some of the new things that have to be done because we're gonna break our backs on mm-hmm. trying to do it all. And so the strategic planning process needs to be as much about efficiency and seeing what isn't as necessary anymore as it is about what is necessary. If you leave it up to college faculty and staff, we will
1: just add on to the to-do list. Indeed. Do you have any examples of, of, a, of something that probably should be left by the wayside? For well,
0: maybe one that you would know um, Right away is that we've got to shift. Uh, we've got to shift some things to technology, and everybody thinks that means less jobs. I'm not saying that that means less jobs. I'm saying that might mean we can do things quicker, so that we can do some more fulfilling things for students. But we we tend to keep our yellow paper and pad and pencil near us at all times. And and let's face it. And since I'm one of them, let me say it. Um, Our generation of baby boomers is getting too old to want to change too much. There are a lot of us left out there in the workplace. And so it's difficult for us to change. I say to our president at Credo, do not make me learn another software program. (laughs) I cannot stick around if you do that so so we've got a we've got a group of younger folks ready for the innovation ready for the change Um, but we and I certainly don't want those of us who are um, who are aging um, to go away because our wisdom is so needed and so necessary but we've got to come to some place where we say there are more efficient ways to do what we do than the way that we're doing them And we see that everywhere. We see it everywhere um, that we go. Now, if you want me to bring up an example, I'll bring one up that's familiar to you. Uh, Schedules are usually still designed around around faculty. Okay. Okay. And Mm -hmm. we have found in our research and our deliberation at Credo that we can find anywhere from $50,000 to $200,000 lost in schedules at times because classes are not big enough. There are no caps put on them. Professors are saying, I'm gonna teach it this way and here and that at this time. So yeah, we're gonna to have to let go of the design of scheduling and bring into it a more relevant and efficient scheduling that will help us with that margin and will help us with our own resiliency. So, you know, there can be another 50
1: like that. Sure. Uh, well, and the schedule, as you know, can be such a hot potato. I've seen that one play out myself, and uh, am familiar with trying to change the schedule and uh, the resistance that uh, is easily easily met. So, but that's a great that's a great example.
0: Good example.
1: So, from all that you write and uh, what you speak about, you obviously believe that leadership is really really important. That's one of the threads that comes through so much of what you say. So in this current era, what does effective dynamic leadership look like in the higher ed context specifically? Yeah,
0: well, a few things. Um, One, I hardly use the word leadership anymore. I use courageous leadership Because I wanna make, I wanna say leadership has been so overused, as you know. And so I wanna make a difference, a compelling difference when I talk about it, that it's gotta be um, courageous. So, So there are a couple things. Leadership takes many forms. One is an inspirational form. Our leaders have got to be able to inspire the group underneath them. And because of that, it might be necessary for some of our leaders to have some training in how to inspire, in how to um, influence people in an area that needs influence. And so we have a lot of people in leadership positions who do a great job, but but they do a better job at what they do than at what they compel their team to do. Does that make sense? Oh, absolutely. So, I like to say courageous leadership because not just because you got to take risks, but because you might need more development and more training in this area of public speaking. I get asked often to um, to do workshops and little seminars for people on how to how to speak better, how to get my point across better. We get asked often a lot about that at mm-hmm. Credo, which is important. I think lead leaders, and, and you won't surprise you that I say this, uh, have to have data to back up what they're saying. They have to have the data and a clear plan. And I, I really think that they've got to have a clear expectation from people above them about what it is they're supposed to accomplish. Mm-hmm. We are still not good at performance evaluations Mm -hmm. in higher education. We still don't do it as well as we can. Some don't do it at all. Many presidents still don't have evaluations and performance evaluations. And until we get to that point, I don't think our leaders can have the confidence to be as courageous as they need to be. And you know, you you sit out there looking at the no confidence votes like you've talked about, and you think, and I don't even know what my board thinks about me because they haven't appraised me. Mm-hmm. And they haven't told me that lately. And so when you when you have those clear goals and clear expectations, that's what our work has all been about at Credo in the leadership area. Uh, we do some aspiring leaders, work we, we want people, our, our recent words have been, we want them to feel like owners more than employees. We want them to own it. It's different to own something than it is to, to just be somebody who does what they're told. And you can only own something when somebody has given you clear expectations. So that's what I think it's going to take. It's, um, I was very fortunate at an early age to be sent to the creative leadership Center for Creative Leadership in Greensboro, North Carolina, and it was not an easy week because there were 360s done by my staff, And but it was a week when I learned what I needed to correct and what I needed to grow in going forward, and we just don't take that time. You know, Melissa, you'll be sensitive to this. I, I, I worry about our department chairs who are asked all mm-hmm. the time to take leadership roles, but they that's not what they've been trained to do, and- right. So sometimes we need something communicated through our department chairs and they haven't been given those tools um, to do that with or those clear expectations. So so leaders in everywhere in the the system, sometimes I'll see a strategic plan where the theme is courageous leadership and it goes from the student organizations, to the board, to the faculty, to the staff, um, all the way through the system that there would be more training. And I think that's what it's going to take.
1: Yeah, boy, I I agree with that. So so for those that are just starting out, emerging leaders who have their eyes set on a dean's position, a provost, a VP, a presidency, are there there a few things that you could offer? If you think back to your own journey, and you just mentioned uh, that you had access to a wonderful leadership development experience, um, what would you tell these emerging leaders that they should have on their radar in terms of their own journey forward?
0: You know, I I've said this to a, um, a, a master's in higher ed and a doctor, doctoral higher ed class uh, over the last couple of months, and, and I'll say it again, COVID has provided an unbelievable opportunity for young leaders to come to the table. It really, really has, because our a lot of our level of leaders who are more risk, Um, they they do not want to take as much risk. And so they've stepped back a little bit and presidents are asking everybody now, what do you think we ought to do about this? I've seen more young leaders step up during the COVID crisis than ever before. So there's a real opportunity here for young leaders to be heard. But I would say two things um, that could be substantial and strategic and practical really think about the difference between replenishing administration and draining it. Think about that carefully and think about whether what you are going to step up to talk about um, or step to the table with is not draining the life out of the people that you're talking to. Sometimes it can come as a whining um, step up and sometimes it can come as a critical step up that will drain a group that is already drained bring to the table something in solution that will replenish everybody involved and keep those two words in mind whenever you're moving ahead in leadership. And I think it's going to be helpful. And the second thing is design a pilot. Do a pilot project on something. Design a pilot that only involves a couple of people and you that you're going to put extra time in and bring it to administration and say, I'd like to run this little pilot and keep data on it so we can see how it might work. You will be noticed when you start bringing pilots to
1: the table. That is such great wisdom. Uh, And I've seen that play out time and again with (laughs) leaders who have been able to become noticed in, in that way. You know, one of the other things, Joanne, you said at the beginning that I think is really important, you talked about the the fact that you're a generalist, that you gained broad experience as you came up the, uh, the institution. And that has clearly uh, played a role in your success. So is that something that you also think uh, to advise young people to try to get a broad experience. Yes. I mean, I, I feel like, um,
0: but I, but you have to be careful of me and others like me who are early adapters and I am an early adapter. I love change. I love the excitement of change. And so every time the president at Elon uh, asked me if I wanted to move to try this or go to fix that, at one point I had a position called special assistant to the president for special projects. And I loved that one more than anything. It wasn't a very neat title, but I got to do so many little things in it that was so much fun. You have to be careful of early adapters. We're quick to say, make changes. And we know that's not right for everybody. But you do have to be quick to accept challenges that people might give you without saying I'm too tired or I don't think that I have the capacity for that. It, you know, Those of us who are, who are older and who are seasoned will tell you that most of what happened to bring us to our leadership roles is we took on too much at one time or another so that we could prove we could do some things. And sometimes that has to happen. Uh, I look at some young people today and I see them protecting their time because we've talked so much about workaholism and what the problems are in it. But I hope we didn't destroy entrepreneurism in that process so that they would be willing to reach outside their boundaries every once in a while.
1: I think your, uh, your point about the balancing uh, is, is really important to keep in mind. Um, So now we've come to the end of our time. I've so enjoyed this conversation. Uh, We have a signature question that we ask of all of our guests. And so I would like to ask you to take out your crystal ball and tell us what you see ahead for higher education. And what does that mean for what needs to be on the radar for all leaders right now?
0: Well, let me look up to a time when I don't think I'll be around it anymore, which I don't know what that would be. I keep on thinking it's going to be next year, but that was eight years ago when I retired. So, but let me look out about 10 years and and see what I, uh, because I've thought about this a good deal. So let me just say a couple of things. I really believe we're going to have figured out a way to make it affordable. I really do. I think we've all got our eyes on that. I'm not sure how we're going to do it, but some things are beginning to emerge that make me feel better about it. Um, what was emerging earlier in the, this decade uh, was in the in the 2000 decade was that we were going to um, we were going to have a big problem with the subsidizing of the education and students were going to have to pay more and have more loans and that was not the right thing to uh, emerge, but some new, some new thinking is emerging now so I'll I'll be interested in that 10 years from now. I really believe that we will have had an overhaul of all of our um, of all of our content in higher education. I feel like we there's some things historical that we will always need to teach. But I believe by that time, all of our professors would have overhauled to everything to be relevant to current times. And I've, I love the thought of that, of how that will happen. It will happen first, probably in our community colleges and second, probably in our adult education because they will demand it, but it will come to our traditional um colleges where we we have overhauled that that whole piece i think we're talking about personal learning pathways and i'm so excited for uh, my grandchildren are all in college so they'll miss it but i think their children will probably be looking at personal learning pathways where they get to design something that absolutely thrills and interests them so that they will be um, excited to walk into every single classroom and i think teaching will have changed i think this new generation of professors coming up will understand that there are different kinds of learners. And I think they will have help. I think there will be learning designers in every university who can help professors design for all those folks so that they can concentrate on content and the professors uh, and the learning designers can help them deliver it um, to all different kinds of learners. And I'm thrilled when I think about that. I don't think the residential experience would go away, but I'm really hoping that it could be part of the nation's, the solving of the nation's problem about community. I'm hoping we could get back into the example mode that we were in 100 years ago, where we were setting the pace, and that we could be models for community living um, and models for addressing divisiveness. Um, and, and I really hope with all my heart that everybody can feel included, that there will be no group that feels um, pushed away from higher ed or not included in its most precious parts. And so that's what I see, I'm very optimistic. I think we're on the way to all of it now and I can't wait, I hope
1: I'm here to watch it. Oh, what a compelling and inspiring uh, vision to end on. And I do too, I hope that you are around and that your voice will be heard for many, many years to come. So, Joanne, thank you so much for this time. And uh, I've learned a lot just from the conversation. And I, I hope we can uh, have many more conversations like this. In oh, the, in the I do to too, come. Melissa. Thank you. I'm Melissa Moore Solson and
2: you've been listening to Ingenious You, the podcast where we speak with higher ed's most creative thinkers and doers. Ingenious U is a production of CHELOP, the Center for Higher Education Leadership and Innovative Practice at BayPath
1: University. Check out our website at baypath.edu slash CHELUP for information about our professional development opportunities, including our blog and our free monthly Leading Edge Thinking in Higher Education webinar series. Be sure to rate and review You wherever you get your podcasts and let your friends and colleagues know so that they too can join the Ingenious You community. That's all for now. Thanks so very much for listening. Stay healthy and be well.